in Genesis, the great hymn. Some young people just uh, maybe two weeks ago I was with, and they were kind of kidding about various hymns and the various types of church songs, praise, and this one was one of them. And in making fun of hymns, this one guy said, oh, here I raise my Ebenezer or whatever that means. And I'm like, because you're biblically illiterate doesn't mean we should change our songs and water them down to nothing. And so, anyway, that's not a very good argument that you don't know what Ebenezer means. Genesis chapter 5, verse 26. It says, And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and two years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years, and he died. And Lamech lived 180 and two years, and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord, uh, the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together as your people, for your word. And we come to this place and to this hour, Lord, needy people and needing to hear from you and needing your help as well to hear from you. And so we pray, God, that this living word will come into our hearts and minds. It will, it will straighten out our thinking and our hearts. And we know that belief determines behavior. And so also straighten out our lives. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more important lessons we've noted so far in this series on foundations is this clear presentation in Scripture of certain distinctions, differences that exist in the world, in society. And then, of course, in conjunction with that, you can see mankind's absolute illogical, obsessive, self-destructive quest to destroy these very distinctions laid out in the first verses and pages of Genesis. It's very telling that these are the things that the world attacks. It's a reminder of the serpent's long war against God. Yea, hath God said. If God says this, you can be sure that the world is going to be against it. For example, we noted first the distinction between the Creator and His creation. In the beginning, God. This God, the only God, the true God, who created everything else. So that leaves out there's no humanism, no pantheism, no idolatry. There is God, and you're not Him. The second foundational truth is distinction between male and female. Genesis 1.27, male and female created He them. Genesis 2.24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave unto his wife. There's male and female mentioned over and over again. So the distinction between the creator and creation, boy, is that being attacked. It's always been attacked. Number two, the distinction between male and female, relentlessly being attacked today. And then number three, we noted the distinction between good and evil. Genesis 2.9 talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know, amazing as it sounds, not everybody is willing to acknowledge that there is good and evil, that there's right and wrong. Genesis 2.16 is the first example 
in human history of what's good and what's not good. It says the Lord God commanded man, saying. That's a command. So obeying the command by faith is good. From the very beginning, there are examples in the Bible of the Creator's will. That's good, what God wants. In fact, male and female, that's what God wants. Anything other than that, fighting against it, is called rebellion. And that's sin, and that's not good. And in the context of that, we noted this very important foundation, uh, foundational distinction that between the world and God is that man is basically what? Bad, not good. The world thinks, man thinks, man is basically, basically good. So you have creation and creator, male and female, good and evil. And then also there is the distinction in the Bible, very important, designed by God, between humans and animals. Man is created in God's image. Animals were created to serve man. And you know, atheistic evolution is an attack on all four, all four of these distinctions, including the fifth one that we're going to look at tonight. And that is the distinction, the distinction between life and death, or put another way, between this life and eternal life. You may have noticed that Moses wrote down all of these increasingly long, incredibly long lifespans, right? And then if you read through and continue reading through, the very same Moses changes that. And he starts to change them so that they get shorter and shorter. Why would Moses look silly to talk about someone 900 years old and then later on make it down to 100 years and so on? Why would he write that down, the same Moses? Well, folks, it's Moses only wrote it. He didn't author it. He just wrote what he was told to write. What's interesting and what's important is this continual refrain in this chapter. Over and over and over again, three words. Look at verse 5. It says, In the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's a long time, but it says, and he died. Verse 11. And the days of Ennis were 905 years. Here it is, and he died. Verse 17, you'll notice what it says. And all the days of Mahalaleel were 890 and five years, and he died. Last line of verse 19, and he died. And so it goes. Now, follow this carefully. If you were 930 years old today, let's say you're 930 years old, just to get an idea of how long this was. You would have been 400 years old when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's incredible. The question is why? Why did they live so long? Now look, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I believe the Bible by faith. And if God wanted me to know exactly why he would put it here. Some people say it was because 6,000 years ago the world didn't have all of the diseases, the chemicals, the pollutions. We've heard so many prayer requests for cancer tonight. Cancer is prevalent in the United States of America, not as prevalent in some third world countries. Some say with Dr. Henry Morris that before the flood, the earth had a vapor canopy around it. And the Bible does say the waters above the firmament, that, that fell. And once that fell, this makes perfect scientific sense, of course, that vapor canopy protected the earth from radiation. It was a perfect Garden of Eden all over the earth. And once it came down, radiation came and lifetimes started to diminish after the flood. Others say it's a simple explanation of sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin had not taken its full toll. I tend to think it's all of them. 
put together. I mean, all, other than Adam, I think Adam lived so long is because he had a wife, but he didn't have a mother-in-law. Amen? That would be an, a reason. <laughs> but think of this. Adam lived over 900 years, but it still says he died. And he died. Those three words about the first man begin this graveyard that continues through the chapter. Adam had a son named Seth. And verse 8 tells us what happens to Seth, and he died. Seth had a son named Enos, and what happened to Enos? We just read it. He died. He had a son named Canaan, and well, guess what? He died. He had a son named Mahalil, and he died. He had a son named Jared, and even though Jared lived for 962 years, he also finally ends up dying. All of this death, which God warned of in the garden, remember, don't, don't eat it. Death will come. All of it is compounded as it leads into chapter 6, where sin becomes rampant and God sends the flood. And guess what? Everybody on the earth, nearly everybody, dies in that flood at the same time. Romans 5.14 says, death, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And that's what the chapter is about. But folks, tucked away in all of this darkness and this gloom, there is this deliberate, divinely given to us, blazing light that has tremendous significance for every Christian in this room. Verse 19 says that before Jared died, it says he too had a son and his name was Enoch. Well, here's a question. Now, I know most of you know this. Did Enoch die? Say it out loud. No. No, incredibly, he never died. The pattern was, if you read it like in one sitting, you just read so-and-so living, he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and when you get to Enoch, it says, and Enoch, and it's like, wait a minute, what? The Bible says in Hebrews eleven five that Enoch should not see death. What that means is, before the judgment of the flood in chapter 6, God took Enoch to heaven, snatched him out, he took him, just as before the, the great tribulation, the judgment of the last days, I believe, we believe, that God's going to take the church. People who don't say, well, I know, that's kind of a weird doctrine, lift him out. Well, is it a weird doctrine that he lifted Enoch out just before the judgment of the flood? You know, it's very interesting, as we noted last week, that just before the book of Revelation, this book of Jude, written about the apostasy of the last days, that's what Jude is all about, that Jude mentions, of all people, Enoch. He mentions Enoch, and you may remember what he says about Enoch. And the Holy Spirit tells Jude what to say because it's not written anywhere else. It says in Jude 14, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, we talked about that last week, prophesied of these, these what? These last days. Enoch prophesied of our last days, saying, The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Isn't it strange that 6,000 years ago, Enoch prophesied about the second coming of Jesus today? It's not strange, because Enoch is a picture of the church who, living before the greatest judgment, will be translated to another kingdom. Hebrews 11:5. by faith, Enoch was, here's the word, translated that he should not see death. Do you know what it means to be translated? It means to transfer to another place, to transpose. We do it with language. People do it with music. Translation is when you take one word of one language, put it into another language without losing the meaning of the word. 
To transpose is when you take the same notes and you put them into a different key. And that's exactly what happened to Enoch. He was moved to another place, but he was still Enoch. How did it happen, preacher? I don't get it. Chapter 5, verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it. I mean, I'd like to know more, but that's, God says this is what happened. We get a little more detail in the book of Hebrews. That's how he took him. Look at verse 22. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. Can you imagine that Enoch walked with God? He walked with the Lord and was faithful to God for three centuries. Wow. 300 years Longer than the history of our own nation. A little girl came home from Sunday school and told her daddy she learned about Enoch. He said, tell me about Enoch. And she said, well, it's something like this. Enoch walked with Jesus every day. Every day, year after year. And like for 300 years, Enoch walked with Jesus. And he walked, and one day he walked, and he walked, and he walked. And Jesus said, Enoch, you're closer to my house than your house. You're just going to stay here from now on. That's not so bad. If he could do it for 300 years, surely we can do it for three score and ten. Oh, it's so bad, it's so rough, it's so hard. 300 years. As the world, you're going to see in a moment, grew darker and darker, this man walked with God. And maybe we'll be among those who are taken in that faithfulness, just like Enoch. So here's what happens. Verse 22. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived in 180 and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years, and he died. Pastor, it's just a bunch of numbers. No, it's not. I think everybody in this room knows that Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible. Even the world knows it. They talk about he's old as Methuselah, whatever. They probably don't know why. He's older even than Adam, as far as lifespan goes. The Bible says that he lived for 969 years. Now, if you get a calculator out sometime, not right now, leave your phones in your pockets, you'll notice some interesting things here. One of which is the fact that with such these long lifespans, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it meant that people had accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge. It also meant that a lot of these people knew each other. For example, Enoch, who the Bible says walked with God, think of this. He would have, all you have to do is, again, the math, you look how long Adam lived, how long, when he was born, it's all clear as a bell. Enoch would have known his great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam for 308 years. Adam would have known Enoch for 308 years. That means he could have talked with Adam about when Adam walked with God back in the cool of the day. Matter of fact, one of Noah's sons, and again, this is just the overlapping of the years, one of Noah's sons who walked off of that ark could have known Abraham for 150 years. Think of what he could have told Abraham. Had they met, it also means that Enoch's son, Methuselah, could have known Adam for 200 
in 43 years. Our nation is 247 years old. Which means what, Pastor? Well, it means, for example, that Methuselah could have told Noah everything about the history of man from the very creation of the world. In other words, Adam and Methuselah pretty much bridge the gap between creation and the flood. All of this is a continuing story. But the most interesting thing is what you see in the year Methuselah died. Now again, remember, it was when Enoch had a boy, when Enoch had a baby, that he really began to walk with God, which happens a lot. And what did he name that baby when he began to walk with God? He named the baby Methuselah, which means sent in death. Even Wikipedia says that's the translation of his name. It's kind of cryptic, kind of crazy. Genesis 5.25 says that, now follow this carefully, and you just have to listen to me, you can do your calculator later. Methuselah lived 187 years when his son, Lamech, was born. In verse 28, we're told that Lamech was 182 years when Noah was born, and you add those together, and it shows that Methuselah himself was 369 years old when Noah was born. So what? Okay, you just need to add one more verse. Genesis 7:11 says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on the same day, the flood began. If you're even a little bit good at math, and you did your calculator, if Noah was 600 years old, Methuselah was exactly 969 years old when the flood came. So what happened when Methuselah was 969 years old? We just read it. He died. Remember the name that Enoch gave his son. Methuselah basically means in the year. In the year that he dies, it will come, it will be sent. If God were to give you a son, and then he revealed to you that whenever your son was going to die, the year at least, the year he was going to die, would be the same year of Jesus' coming, would that affect your life? Would that make you think? I mean, the very, at the very least, you would know that Jesus is coming soon in our case. But more than that, you don't know if this child will live for one day or a decade. You don't know that. So it could be any day. And every time the little boy gets a fever, you're like, could this be it? He's late home from school. I wonder if this is it. It's no wonder that the Bible says Enoch walked with God. It's called expectation. You know, the New Testament tells us that the return of Jesus is a blessed hope that purifies us. People who are anticipating the return of Jesus live kind of like Enoch did. They want to walk with God. They want to be ready. Enoch was taken. One day we'll be taken. Princess Victoria, as a young girl, was being taught by her governess, who was a countess, tutored and the governess, one day, she went to Victoria's royal parents and she expressed the need for this little girl, young Victoria, to know that one day she was going to become the Queen of England. And they agreed with that. So they allowed the governess to tell her whatever she, way she wanted. What she did was she inserted the little girls in the, the, her history books that she taught from uh, day after day. All, there was this list of the Hanoverian kings, you know, the monarchs. And she took her pen and she wrote 
at the very end of the list, the name Victoria. And doing the lesson, the girl saw it. And she looked up at her tutor and she said, is it true that, that someday I shall be queen of England? Yes, the governess said. And the governess said that when she told her, little future queen, little Victoria answered, then I shall be good every day. You know, we know, this is a purifying hope. We know that we are waiting for the return of Jesus and that God is making us kings in this kingdom. It ought to have an effect on how we live today. Future prospect should affect life choices. And it should really affect life choices when something is this certain as we know the return of Jesus is. And think about this. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, the reason why Methuselah lived longer than any other human being, 969 years. Why do you think he lived longer than Adam? The Bible actually tells us. It says in Peter, and Peter wrote the words, the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. The long-suffering of God waited. God did not want to send the flood out of love and grace. Pastor, why hasn't the rapture occurred? It's been 2,000 years. Why so long? Because God is patient. He is long-suffering. Somebody still has a chance to get saved. Maybe somebody in this room. You'll notice that Methuselah has a son. His name is Lamech. And Lamech has to be thinking, now, Grandpa... Grandpa just disappeared. Lamech's 113 years old. And he had only, if you think about it for a moment, he had perhaps only seen one person die in his entire life. And now his grandpa is taking, taken alive to heaven. So he's thinking now when dad dies in judgment, it's going to be. What does he name his son? Let's look at it. Verse 28. And Lamech lived in 180 and two years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. He calls his son Noah. That means comfort. You know what that is to me? To me, this man had some faith. Throughout this chapter of death, Throughout this entire period of degradation in the world at large, of course, the, these two glimmers of hope are placed in the Word of God. Enoch, who escaped the curse of death, and Noah, who would comfort those who would be under that same curse. You see, Noah not only found grace in the eyes of the Lord, that's a wonderful thought, right, and truth, he was also a preacher of righteousness. We're going to see next week that he offered people a safe haven. He offered them an ark of salvation. And beloved, it has always been, A, God has a witness, and B, God has always demonstrated His grace. There is another reason that Noah's time would bring about certain comfort and rest to man who trusts God. And we, we are those who believe God. We're people of faith, right? It was after the flood that lifespans... Whoosh, why a lot of scientists believe in the vapor canopy and other issues and, and dinosaurs died off, things like that. A lot of changes happened to the globe itself, to the planet. Lifespans were shortened. Gradually, they became less and less until 
by the time of Isaac and Jacob, it's like 150 years. And by Moses' time, by, by David's time rather, it was three score and ten. Plus another ten, which is what it is today. How is that comfort and arrest, Pastor? I can tell you why, how it is for me. In a world of sin, in a cursed earth, 969 years is a long time to wait for deliverance. Did you hear all the requests tonight? Cancer, dying, tumor, pain, heartache. Do you want to live through 969 years of this cursed earth? That's a lot of sorrow. A lot of temptation for one lifetime. And so we come to chapter 6. Next week we're going to really get into chapter 6, but let's begin it first. Verse 1 says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, beautiful, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with men, for that he is also his flesh. Yet his day shall be in 120 years. You see what's happening here. And follow this carefully. Verses 5 and 6. Well, let's look at it. Verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented, regretted the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And then you see verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is the distinction, by the way, between life and eternal life. And yes, grace is what gives that distinction. This is, you talk about foundational truths in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised when? Before the world began. That's Titus 1-2. Which brings us to some closing thoughts as we begin chapter 6. Let's go back to verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, the serpent was such a liar, wasn't he? Such a liar in the garden. You're not going to die. God knows that the day you eat, look at the death and the sorrow. Young people, the same serpent, the same devil is still a liar today. He says you can erase the distinctions between creator and creation, between male and female. Yeah, he's saying it. He's saying it's still a lie. It still leads to death, just like it did then. So here we have five chapters. It's only been five chapters since the beginning pages of the Bible of all things and just two chapters since the fall of man. But already we see the global consequences of sin has taken this world in the path of destruction and despair. You know, one of the words that's often overlooked and it should never be when, it, when you talk about or think about the flood. Whenever you look at the story of the flood, you should never miss out on these two words found twice in the story. The first time is in verse 11. It says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. That's the word. It was filled 
with violence. Verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. What does God see when He looks down in a sin-cursed world? He sees violence. Never forget this. This world was full of violence. And you know what violence is? It's what brings about suffering. It's what brings about misery and injustice and bloodshed. So that exactly as God warned about back in the garden, ye shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. And what began in the garden has now progressively, even exponentially, gotten worse. The beginning of this chapter, God tells us how this degradation metastasized. Go back to verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now look, I'm going to spend five minutes on this maybe. I'm sure most of you know there's a very popular teaching that says that the sons of God in this text are angels, fallen angels, and the daughters of men are the humans. And somehow the angels cohabited with women, humans, and their offspring were these monstrosities, these giants. It says giants in the verse, in verse 4. And that, they say, is the, the explanation for the acceleration and the decline of society and thus the need to destroy the world, get rid of all these, these angel freaks, right, that were born from humans. Well, I know that's a very popular notion. In fact, some of my favorite Bible teachers commentaries I have in my office right now hold to that view I have no doubt that there's probably 50 or 100 people in the room tonight who hold to that view probably because you were told that's what it says but before getting too dogmatic about it and just for a moment or two can we consider the likelihood of that interpretation as well as the ramifications and what you might miss if you have it first of all the Bible doesn't say here, that the offspring of those sons of God were monstrosities or giants. In fact, it really says the opposite. If you read it in context, look at verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his day shall be in 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also... After that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became, the, their children became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. In other words, the Bible is just saying that there were giants in the earth in those days. And that's no surprise with the long lifespans. But then it says after that, after or following those giants in those days, the children of the sons of God became mighty men. Not mighty demigods, not mighty monstrosities. They were just famous men. That's what the word mighty, they were famous men of renown like Nimrod was in the flesh. So it really doesn't say that fallen angels had kids who were big giants. I remind you that Jesus said in Matthew and in Luke that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Verse 2, you'll notice, says that the sons of God chose wives. That little phrase, took them wives, that's repeated all through the Old Testament. 
It's the common phrase for when a man finds a wife. It, it, you'll see it over and over again. Took him a wife, took them wives. There's nothing unusual about that. It says that they chose them wives, took wives, not hosts, not victims or surrogates. They were just wives. Now, I know. I know, for example, Clarence Larkin says in his commentary that five times, now follow me carefully, I know this is getting in the weeds, that five times he says the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament and all five of them refer to angels. I know that, and that's strong evidence, right? It is to me, except and until and unless you realize and read that three of the five times are all in the book of Job, a poetic book where Job says the morning stars sang together and the sons of God sh the, shouted for joy. So in other words, the three times that he's saying, the five times, three of them are in one book. That's a single source in good hermeneutics. The other two times in the Bible, which make up five, are right here in the text. And that doesn't count in hermeneutics as proof, or then it's just circular reasoning. So if you want to talk about that, consider these other texts. Hosea 1.10, I'll put it on the screen just to help you. This text says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, here's the, what's on the screen, right? In the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Sons of God? Yeah, that's Old Testament. Here's Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. There's nothing new about calling God's people sons of God in the Old Testament. So what does Genesis 6 mean? Could you just consider what it seems, the more natural reading of this text? If you go back to last week, all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 talk about A, the godly seed of Seth, and B, the fleshly line of Cain. Nobody debates that there are these two roads, that there are two lines. Some men began to call upon the name of the Lord, but not the, God, the ungodly line of Cain. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and built a civilization. Chapter 4. Seth, it says in chapter 5, had a son named Enos, and then, quote, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the godly line, and then the ungodly seed. So as men began to multiply on the face of the earth, some of those men were giants, just as there were giants in the days of the Philistines. There's a giant now named Taco Fall. The guy's seven foot, six inches, man. He's a giant, right? Played for the NBA. Some of these men, some of them were in the line of Seth, the godly seed. And some of these men in the godly seed did the one thing that corrupts a generation. And this is the truth that gets missed on this. The one thing that can stop a godly seed. This is why the earth accelerated in its degeneracy. It's verse 2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. Think about this. It says that these men took wives from the daughters of men, which, quote, they chose. In other words, without counsel and without advice, they arbitrarily married women based upon what? What they saw. They're gorgeous. And they chose them. That's called sons of God marrying daughters of men. Believers marrying unbelievers. 
I don't know if fallen angels are attracted to beautiful women, but I know men are. And I know these men were. And can I ask this too, just for those of you watching or listening who hold to the other interpretation, I'm not mad at you much. <laughs> Why would fallen angels be called sons of God? Why would demons be called sons of God? These are fallen angels that they purport. So what happens when saved people, believers, marry unbelievers? When there's that darkness and light? When the devil becomes your father-in-law? In most of those cases, children will choose the wrong path. And sure enough, the next generation is apostate and has done exactly that. I know there's even other interpretations of this text. But whatever you want to believe about it, don't let the real emphasis of the chapter be overshadowed. And that, beloved, is what God is telling us here about the reason he sent the flood. Why did God send a flood to destroy all of the earth? I remember I served in Tennessee as an associate for years. A little girl came to our Sunday school one day, rode a bus. She came home and told her parents what she learned that day. She had been coming for a long time, but on that day, she told them about Noah and the flood. And she said, Daddy, did God really destroy the world? And he got so angry. He didn't go to church. Typical redneck, hillbilly, Tennessee, didn't go to church. But he got so angry and incensed. He, the mother was so offended that that was taught. They never let her come again. And when they called the church and explained it, my God, they said, my God would never do anything like that. My God is a loving God. Our society now, Western civilization, is famous for this kind of human reasoning. A God of love would fill in the blank. The problem is, not only is that extremely shallow, one-dimensional, deceitful, it's just plain wrong. It's untrue. Why did God send the flood? Verse 5 again. We're almost done. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you imagine, folks, a, a world in which all you basically have is spiritual darkness? You know, there's a, there's a movie called Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life, and in the movie, Jimmy Stewart goes back to Bedford Falls in a different future. But it's not Bedford Falls, as you know, it's, it's Pottersville. And of course, in Pottersville, everybody's a drunk or a crook or a victim of a crime. It's just a horrid place. It's corrupt and violent. In another Hollywood film, the town is called Hill Valley. And an evil guy named Biff runs the town in dark, dangerous, depressing existence. Hollywood's version. In the real story, in the word of God, of man's degradation, God does see the future. He does. God does see the consequences of complete violence and a world full of sin and the misery and the suffering that would just continue to grow exponentially. And he puts an end to it. That's what he does. I'm sure you noticed how in a lot of church nurseries, there's this mural painted on the wall. And in these church nurseries, and sometimes in little beautiful pictures in Bibles, children's Bibles, you have these bright colors, pretty colors, 
and then this cartoonish depiction of Noah and the ark. And there's a big, huge, cute factor because you have a plank going up to the boat and these two little ladybugs are going up and two little turtles are going up. All these animals, two by two, two little ducks. And next to it is an old man and a, and a pretty rainbow. It's a mother goose story. The problem is there was nothing cute. There was nothing cartoonish about Genesis chapter 6. I've yet to see a nursery mural that shows the wicked and the vile as they drown in death while shaking their fists in anger to God. Right? Because that's the story. Look at verse 13. We're going to close. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come up before me, come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. And it's filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The end, it says. The end of all flesh. God's patience had reached a rightful limit and the cup of his wrath was full. And the only right thing for God to do is exactly what he did do. You know, you think about it this way. There's this movie out now called The Sound of Freedom. I haven't seen it. I know about the man. I've read about him in, in years past, and he's a hero. So people in this earth, you know, decent people, are appalled and shocked and sickened by stories of child abductors, the rape and murder of those little children, child trafficking, and they want something done, anything, except what has to be done. They want something done except what has to be done to stop it. Because the first thing you would have to do that corrupts these minds anyway is tell Hollywood no more garbage. No, no more pornography. Just stop all of that. That'd be first. That would help. You'd have to close the border, which is what they're using to traffic, and nobody's calling for that. You'd have to give the death penalty, which is what you should do. Jesus said it's better for a person not to have been born. It's better than a millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown in the water and you were killed before you did it. You'd have to bring that back for all child abusers. But no. The world will never do what's necessary. And God says if you want to get rid of the rotting fruit, you have to cut the tree at the root. And that's precisely the words of Jesus. That was precisely the words of our Lord who's about to come back and about to put an end to all of the evil in this world. And when he does, he will usher in the promise of eternal glory. Aren't you glad that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and that by his mercy you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us that this book are not just a bunch of random sentences and lines and figures and genealogies, but this is your word. And it shows us the foundation of everything. We praise you tonight, Father, that you have shown us that we can walk with you no matter how dark the world is. No matter how vile and wicked it is, we can walk with you and that one day you will take us. Help us to be faithful for our three score and ten as this man was for 300 years. And I pray that we will be lights in this dark world so that others will find grace.
in your eyes. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.